It's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Tony. If we haven't had the the privilege of meeting, I'll scoot this over a tiny bit. There we go. I hope you're well this morning. Um, you know, as I was just saying, you know, we've been celebrating Advent for the last few weeks, and the point of Advent is to sort of prepare our hearts for Christmas. So each week we've been doing a little bit of work, leaning into what does it look like to make our hearts soft and ready for Jesus. Now, like everyone, I, I think, I, you know, I, I enjoy a lot of aspects of Christmas. I like the tree. You know, our family has this rhythm of going and chopping down the tree. I, I like the, the ornaments and the lights and doing that as a family. It's super fun. I love the food. As a kid and even today, I'm on, if I'm honest, I like the presents. Uh, but I thought maybe today it might be helpful to sort of lean into the story of Christmas. The reason we have all these traditions is because of a story of Jesus' birth. And one of the students at Robert Down, Everly Vertries, is going to read for us from Luke 2. Time, Augustus Caesar set an order to all people in the countries that were under Roman rule. The order said that they must list their names in a register. This, this was the first registra- registration taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own towns to be registered. So Joseph left Nazareth, a town in Galilee. He went to the town of Bethlehem in Judea. This town was known as the town of David. Joseph went there because he was from the family of David. Joseph registered with Mary because she was engaged to marry him. Mary was now pregnant. While Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem, the time came for her to have a baby. She gave birth to her first son. There were no rooms left in the inn, so she wrapped the baby with cloths and laid him in a box where animals are fed. Thanks. That was awesome. It's good to have another voice other than mine reading. Thanks, Everly. Now, I want to go back to the very beginning of Luke, right? So Luke 2, as Everly was reading, this is what she said, right? Verses, verses 1 through 3. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus and that all the world should be registered. Right? So Caesar has this power. He says the word and the entire world starts moving. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Right? And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So as Luke's setting the context, right, we see right, who's the big power in the world in Luke 2. It's Caesar. Right? At his word, the entire world starts moving. Right, the power of Caesar is the focus at the very beginning of Luke 2. So Augustus, he's the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Uh, he turned the Roman Republic actually into the Roman Empire, obviously with him at the head. He referred to himself as the Son of God. People called him Savior and Lord, and in the eastern parts of the empire, they actually worshipped him as a god. So he has this like almost godlike power in ancient Rome. And when he says, right, hey everyone, we're gathering for a census, right, people get up and they start moving. Now the purpose of the census is basically to count heads so that for tax purposes, Rome gets all of its money. He speaks, the world responds. Now this census in particular required a personal appearance in your place of birth. Caesar speaks, Mary and Joseph start moving. 
Luke writes in verses 4 and 5, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Right? So as a result of Caesar's power, Mary, Joseph, and Bethlehem come onto the scene. Now, a bit of backstory is important here. Now, I realize some of us probably know much of this story, but let's do a little review. So, Mary's been told by an angel that God is going to sort of overshadow her and bear a son, and she will bear a son that will be super central to God's plan in the world. Now, Joseph, he finds out that Mary is pregnant, and he's like, ah, I have to divorce her. But he wants to do it quietly. Because they're betrothed, what this means is they're like more than engaged in our setting, but she is still living with her family. Now Joseph's like, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divorce her. But then he has this dream. And in this dream, he's told by God not to divorce Mary and that the child who is growing in her room is going to save their people. So when we get to verse 4, right, there's a fair amount of backstory. And it says, Joseph went up from Nazareth to the city of David. Now, if you're a first century reader and you're reading that verse, you're automatically thinking, okay, you go up from Nazareth, where do you end up? Jerusalem, right? That's what every first century reader, he goes up to the city of David and everyone's thinking he's going to Jerusalem. But instead, there's a twist. It's not Jerusalem. It's Bethlehem. Now, what's important about Bethlehem? One, it's the place where David was born. And two, there's this prophet named Micah who about 700 years earlier prophesies that one day out of Bethlehem, God is going to bring a future ruler, right? There's going to be another king like David who comes out of Bethlehem. Now things are getting interesting, right? You're living in Caesar's world, right? He's the real power, and yet, the very census that illustrates Caesar's power becomes the means by which God brings about this future ruler to Bethlehem. Rome, unbeknownst to itself, with all its wealth and power, is actually serving a still greater sovereign. And in this unfolding drama, right, Mary and Joseph do this 85-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, kind of like walking from Wellspring just past San Jose. And it's here after this 85-mile journey that Mary's baby is born, Luke writes, verses 6 through 8. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this brings us to some really important contextual considerations, particularly around inns and mangers. Often, we imagine something like this. Mary and Joseph, you know, get to Bethlehem, the sun is setting, and now they're in this frantic door-knocking process at every inn and B&B and hotel in Bethlehem, and everyone has a no-vacancy sign out, and there's sort of this feeling of, if only there was someone nice in the entire city that would let this poor mom, you know, come inside. And instead, they end up in a red barn out in the country with these animals, and we think, wow, man, what a story. 
truth is, that's probably not exactly how it happened. Luke 2.7, the Greek word translated in is kataluma, which is actually more like a guest room than a B&B. Historically, we've gotten kind of attached in English to this word in, but it's a little misleading. And then the question is, how does a manger end up in a guest room of someone's house? And this is where actually some historical contextual digging is really helpful. So a traditional home in Bethlehem would have been a split-level home. You'd have a ground floor connected by a staircase to an upper story. The upper story would be where the family uh, went to bed, right? And then some houses built sort of like on the roof a little guest room. On the first floor, you would have kind of the common eating area, the living room. This is where the family spent most of their time. What's important to know, though, is it's not like an average house in Bethlehem had a barn connected to it. So what they would do at night is they would bring the sheep, the cow, the goat, or whatever, right, into this common living area for the night so they wouldn't be cold. And if the cow wanted a snack, they'd bring the manger, the feeding trough, into this common area so that, you know, the cow or the sheep could have a midnight snack. So when we read Luke 2, this information is really crucial to the story. Mary and Joseph are not anxiously knocking at every hotel and B&B in Bethlehem. This is a tiny town. Maybe there is a small inn where people could stay. Moreover, Middle Eastern culture values hospitality more than maybe any other value. They would almost certainly not turn away a pregnant woman. So what happens instead is Mary and Joseph are welcomed into a home, probably someone they know. But this family has someone staying in the guest room, right? That little space on top of the roof where a guest could stay, right? There's no room for them in the guest room. And so Mary and Joseph end up in the lower story, the living room, the common area, with the animals at night, right? This is why Jesus ends up in a manger, right? And this makes a lot more sense of the story as it develops too, right? So right after this, uh, there's going to be shepherds out in the field and there's going to be angels that reveal themselves, right, to these shepherds and say, hey, go to this baby laying in a manger, And the shepherds, right, imagine yourself in this situation. You see angels, not an everyday occurrence. They tell you to go see the Savior who is born. Now imagine you show up at this drafty, cold, uncomfortable barn. What are you going to do? Obviously, you are going to say, you know what? This isn't safe. This is not good. Come to my house. You're not going to leave this little baby in a drafty, cold barn. You're going to pick up the baby and take the family back to your house. Or imagine the wise men, right? These people have traveled for weeks. They're wealthy. You think they're just going to show up after weeks of travel, drop off their gifts at this drafty, cold barn? No. They're going to make sure the baby is in a safe spot, which makes sense of this story then. The shepherds, the wise men, they show up at a small little house. It's warm. It's not unsafe. Right? And then what do the shepherds do? They go home rejoicing and praising God. The question is, okay, so 
how do some of these tweaks in the story, how does this story itself speak then into our everyday life? Right? Into the, the, the potholes and the fissures, the good spots and the hard spots of our everyday life in 2020 when things are just a little more crazy than normal. I think a few things. And sometimes I think we read this story and we think, if only there were more hospitable people in Bethlehem, then Jesus wouldn't have had to been born, right, in the barn. But reading this story, we need to remember that Jesus is not born by accident, right, in the living room with the manger. Luke starts chapter 2 focusing on the power of Caesar, right? With the word, the entire Roman world starts moving amidst this inconceivable power of Caesar. Luke paints God's power as even greater, right? He uses Caesar as his pawn, right? In a world like we live in, a world where so many things are calling for our allegiance, Luke is reminding us that true power belongs to God. And I think we kind of need to know this in 2020. 2020 has been, in my adult life at least, one of the most unpredictable seasons. So much is going on. It's so easy, I think, in the midst of this year to look at all the forces at play and feel like they are so big and we are so small. And it's easy when you see all these big things happening to feel fear and anxiety. And the Christmas story is reminding us, in the midst of all the moving pieces of our world, in the midst of COVID and the breakdown in race relations, in the midst of all the things going on, God is still bigger. True power belongs to God, right? That we're not alone. That the God who manipulated Caesar like a pawn is still on the throne. That the God of the universe is still the powerful one who still reigns and rules. That even in 2020, when things feel big and scary, God is bigger. We don't need to be afraid. And yes, when God wanted the Prince of Peace born in a living room among animals, it was more difficult for God to manipulate sort of the census and all of the Roman Empire, surely, than it was for Him to find a comfy place for His Son to be born. And yet, God planned to have Jesus born in a peasant's living room and set in a manger. But why? Why would He do that? I think one of my guesses is there are very few of us. I mean, so like you could have had Him born, right, in a palace. You could have had Him born in, you know, at least in Rome where all the movers and the shakers of the world are, right? Like those are two solid options, the truth is, like, how many of us live in palaces? How many of us feel like movers and shakers in the world? Most of us live in pretty simple homes. Most of us have been guests in other people's houses. 
Most of us have slept at least one time or another, right, in someone's common area, on a couch, with a blanket, or maybe a sleeping bag. I think one of the reasons that God had His Son born in a living room is to remind us that God enters into everyday life. John says in chapter 1 of his gospel that the Word became flesh. And while this certainly means that God took on human form, it also means that He entered into the everydayness of life. And to highlight this, God begins His ministry in a living room of a peasant's home to remind us right, that He enters into the everydayness of our lives, the messy and the more unique parts as well. This is what God, this is what Christmas is all about. God choosing to be with you and me, not just on Sunday morning, right? Jesus was not born in the synagogue, right? Not just in our private space, right? There was no room in the inn. There was not a guest room He could go into. He was born in the everyday common space, doing dishes and laundry, taking out the trash and doing yard work, cooking, stuffing, and eating leftovers, opening presents, watching Elf or whatever Christmas movie of choice, right? God wants to be with us, not just on Sunday morning, but in all the little parts of our lives, the parts that we might discount from the presence of God. Jesus wants to be with us there. He wants to sit next to us. He wants to walk with us. He wants to chat with us. And He wants to give us a hug and hold our hand. And more than this, right? He entered into the mess of everyday life. Think about Mary and Joseph, right? They get to this living room. They see the manger. Surely, like, they take some towels. They scrub that bad boy out. They pat it in some way so that Jesus at least is comfortable. But there's no way to ignore that the Son of God was laid in a feeding trough right, for slobbering animals. In fact, I think the major was a sign of God's presence to us. How He actually uniquely reveals Himself in the mess. Notice, a few verses later, Right, the angels tell the shepherds in Luke, 12, Luke 2 right, that they will find Christ the Lord wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, we know swaddling clothes would have been on every single infant in Bethlehem. The manger, the mess, was the sign. This is pretty unique. Right? No other king anywhere in the world was lying in a feeding trough. Find the baby, you will find the king of kings. And in this way, I think Luke is trying to remind us that God enters the mess. The very first sign of God's presence on earth is the mess. It's the manger. Sam Albury recently wrote, if your life is not Instagrammable, then Christmas is for you. Why? 
Because right? God was born in a manger. He makes his home among the broken. Right? When Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy burdened, he assumed, he knew that one day we would grow weary, discouraged, and disheartened along the way. He knew that there would be areas of our life that we would be tempted to hide, parts of our lives that we might be ashamed of. So he was born in a manger to remind us that he isn't afraid of the mess. Growing up, I had a, a family member who used to say he didn't go to church because he was afraid, you know, that the, the roof would fall in on his head. And this is his way of saying that I've done things in my past that God wants to punish me for. Right, even though we got a tree every year, we shared presents, we put up lights, right, the whole deal. I don't think he ever really heard the Christmas message that God was born in the mess. That God didn't wait for Israel or the shepherds or our unjust, sinful, soaked world to get its act together. Right? The reason the angels say that Jesus' birth is good news leading to great joy is that God draws near even when our lives, even when our world is a total mess. Jesus chooses to be born in a manger to remind us of this fact. And then I think many of us, kind of like my relative, feel like we need to clean up our lives before God wants to be with us. Right? But Christmas is all about this idea that God wants to be with us in the common rhythms of our lives, in the messy parts. Thomas Merton has this great quote. He says, a saint is not someone who is good, right? We often think about this. The saint, the holy person, the, the faithful Christian is someone who is good, right? Who ethically makes the right choices. Instead, Thomas Merton writes, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God, right? The saint is the person who fully welcomes God in to the presentable and the less presentable parts of their life. The truth is, right, sitting this morning, listening this morning, we all have one or two of those parts. I know I do. That little place, maybe it's something in our marriage or something in our parenting or something in our workplace or something that we're, when we're alone, that we're ashamed of. There's a part of us, of our character, of our life, of our rhythms, of our choices that we want to kind of push to the side. And sometimes I think we imagine God like an angry parental figure pointing at us saying, what's wrong with you? And we sort of see this look in his eyes of like, man, there's something broken and wrong in you. And we imagine him pointing his finger at us. But the truth is, that is not Christmas. The Christmas message is all about Jesus with his arms open wide, coming in to hug us and to welcome us. Not in spite of the mess of our lives, but because of it. 
Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, he says, right, I, when I am weak, I am strong. Why? Because the presence and power of Jesus is with him. Not when he has his act together, but when he's broken and weak and falling apart. Dane C. Ortland, uh, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, this won't be projected, just listen to it for a second. Maybe even close your eyes. This is what he writes. When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are not going, you are going with the flow of His, of God's own deepest desires, not against them. It's actually because of the mess, because of the brokenness and sin of our lives that Jesus was born in a manger. He actually wants to come into those places and be with us and heal us. And yet so often, kind of like a a Toreador with a bull, we sort of like step to the side. He continues, he says this, he knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge, when we feel like we see clearly. His restraint simply flows from His tender-hearted love for His people. It's so often we want to hide, we want to keep God at arm's length. But God is the one who actually loves us and sees us fully. I was reminded of uh, when my children were little, more like three, right? They would try and do this ma- a magic trick. I don't know if you've had children, you, you remember, remember this. If you don't have children, you can sort of imagine it. I remember they'd come up and they're like, Dad, you know, let me show you a magic trick. And they'd, you know, try and like hide something. You know, ah, they do this trick, and then be like, what hand is it in? And I'd like see it poking out of their fingers. I think this is exactly what we do with God. We think that we're hiding something, and He sees us. He sees the brokenness. He sees the mess, and He comes in, and He just wants to be with us. And not just with us. The message of Christmas is not purely a personal message. It's also a global one, right? God is not just the Savior of an individual. He's the Savior of the world. And He hasn't just come to meet us in our mess, yours and mine, but the mess of the world and save it. And I think in 2020, man, we know the mess of the world. So while we remember Christmas today, We remember that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. But we also look forward to the day when Jesus will come again and He'll make all things new. What Luke 2 tells us is it's not Caesar or in our world Biden or Trump or the U.S. or the EU who will in the end solve the mess of the world. It will be Jesus. It'll be Emmanuel. It'll be the Prince of Peace. Right, the Savior that the angels announced 2,000 years ago. He will come again into the mess of the world. 
into your mess and into mine, the mess of our global catastrophe, and he'll save it. Now, in most sermons, I like to sort of give a tip at the end, something that's like practical and applied and maybe ask us to do something different or make a change. But I'd like to do something a little different this morning. This morning, my invitation to you is this. Don't try and change yourself. Don't try and get your act together. Don't try and clean up the mess like a stranger's coming over into your house and you want to tidy it up to make it presentable. Don't do that. Just let go. And let Him come into the mess of your life. Let Him enter. And He wants to be with you. Stop fighting. Stop hiding. Imagine that Jesus is standing before you. His arms are open wide. And you have an opportunity just to let him embrace you and welcome you. I think that is the invitation of Christmas. Let's pray. Jesus, we just recognize in this moment, in 2020 and in our lives, God, our world is a mess. And I know personally, Jesus, there are a few areas in my life that feel messy and uncontrollable. And Jesus, I just, I invite you in. I invite you to be with me. God, I invite you to be with us. In this very moment, this sacred moment right now, Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, be kind to us. Be gentle to us. Jesus, born in a manger, I know that you do not look at our lives and the mess of it and point a finger. God, may we know that in the depth of our being, that you welcome us, that you embrace us. God, that you see us like a loving father. Jesus, bring healing this Christmas. Jesus, bring presence, bring comfort that we may know your goodness in the land of the living. God, to you be all the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.